This and every episode of Project 7 is proudly presented by Renewal by Anderson, the complete replacement division of Anderson Windows. With their exclusive Fibrex material, all of their windows are custom-made, high-performance, energy-efficient, and installed by certified installers. Log on today to request your free in-home estimate and take advantage of their buy one, get one 40% off sale with no money down, no interest, and no payments for 12 months with approved credit. Visit rbamontana.com slash BOGO40. That's rbamontana.com slash BOGO40. Project 7 contains explicit language, descriptions of violence, and discussion of suicide. And this week's episode contains a racial slur. It may not be suitable for all listeners. I got a line four buzzing right here. And again, like I said, if there's anybody that, over in that situation uh, with the SWAT team, and if they want to call the station and get a viewpoint out, we will be happy to get that out. Because from what we've been told, now we've, we can only go, we want collaborating evidence on that, but if the sheriff... Or Dave Burger would like me to come over there and help to bridge the gap of trust there that seems to be not there. I would be happy to avail myself of that. Uh, prepaid legal services. Somebody's going to need them. Seven five six eight eight. Welcome to Project Seven. I'm Andy Viano, and I'm Justin France, and this is Episode Five: The People versus David Burger. David, go ahead and call the joke. David, go ahead and disbelieve it. You're about to start something that you have no idea what you're doing. It was the police department, local law enforcement, and local politicians, and kill them all. They were hoping to basically incite the federal government and kicking off this civil war. People were going to die or get hurt, and that's where the whole shit hits the fan. Yeah, he's definitely looking for a place to confront us here. I cannot imagine how terrifying it would be. I received a call and I said, hey... David Berger just popped some shots off at the Missoula County deputies and was like, okay, I'm on my way. And I really expected him to be laying on the ground, but as we cleared it, he was gone. At that point, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. It's that mystery that hasn't been solved. It's the Amelia Earhart of our day in Montana, right? Where is David Berger? If he is alive and he's staying out of trouble, I just hope he does that. Should have done that in the first place. We wouldn't be here doing this story, but... I don't really care what people think about me, and I don't care what they write in the paper. Friend, you do anything you gotta do. <clears throat> okay? Hey, you I'm do anything. You, you remember that this, whatever happens after this moment, will never go away unless it's positive. In early 2002, David Berger was a fugitive from justice. He was due in court to face an assault charge in early January stemming from a fight with a sheriff's deputy on his doorstep a year earlier. But instead of appearing in front of a judge, David made an ill-conceived attempt at faking his own death. The ruse did not fool law enforcement, but David was now a missing person, and he was hiding from the law in the woods with a 17-year-old named Jason Larson. David had become something of a father figure to Jason, who he had known for years, and both were now part of an upstart militia called Project 7. Yet by early February, nearly a month into their exile, their relationship was wearing thin. David, who had always been distrustful of law enforcement, was exhibiting a new level of paranoia and instability. And to make matters worse, Jason had only recently become aware of a plot David and at least one other member of Project 7 were hatching. 
to carry out a series of targeted assassinations of police, government officials, and their families. It was to be the first step in an ambitious plan to overthrow the federal government. Then one day, on a trip from their hiding place in the woods into town to visit a Project 7 member named Tracy Brockway, David tried to kick Jason out of the house so he could have some time alone with his mistress. Jason resisted, so David broke his nose, and the teenager left the house and went straight to the Flathead County Sheriff's Office, where he told deputies that he needed to talk to the FBI. Dave didn't think that I was going to go to the FBI, right? He didn't go back to the woods and to hide. He stayed in town. So obviously he thought that I had enough loyalty. But here's the thing. I have loyalty to the Constitution, to my country, to my community, which those cops are in, and those cops' children are in, and their cops' wives are in. My loyalty to Dave does not supersede the loyalty to my country and to my to the local people here those sheriffs those daughters those children that could have been harmed in that situation so i was not thinking about myself at any point in this i didn't care if the fbi charged me with something well it's not illegal to shoot a fully automatic firearm it's not illegal to blow stuff up legally they really i didn't do anything wrong and when i felt it got to a wrong point, I went to the FBI and I I tried to make it right the best way I could. That same day, Thursday, February 7, 2002, deputies from the Flathead County Sheriff's Office searched a campground outside of town where David and Jason had been hiding. They found no sign of David there, but as one of the deputies, Dave Lieb, was driving back to town, he heard a call come over his radio. Well, we didn't. We never made it back to Kalispell. We got about, uh, I think we got just north of Whitefish and we heard... Uh, the pursuit start out west of town. Dave had been discovered in a place out there, and uh, they, oh, I don't remember the route of the pursuit, but it wound up up on Keenis Road, where he ditched his car and took off in the woods. So we responded directly to there. The weather that February night was horrendous, even by northwest Montana standards. A vicious blizzard blanketed the area with snow, and David's pickup had left the roadway, not far from where the pursuit began and an area just west of Kalispell, known as Batavia. The crash happened after 11 o'clock that night, and at some point after they bailed out of the truck, David and Tracy split up. Deputies nabbed Tracy fairly quickly, bringing her into custody within an hour and charging her with felony obstruction of justice. David proved to be a much more elusive suspect. Under Sheriff Chuck Curry. I was then commander of the SWAT team, so we activated the SWAT team. They responded out there. It was dark, fairly rural, wooded area, but there was a lot of fresh snow. So we uh, we went out and actually chased him through the woods all night uh, on foot. Once the chase for David Berger began, it felt like it was never going to end. David looped back and forth through the area for hours as tired deputies and officers from the Kalispell Police Department trudged through the pitch black night, chasing after a fugitive carrying a large rifle. I think we started hiking after him about 11 o'clock, and it was snowing so hard that uh, I would say within an hour to two hours, you were having a hard time finding his tracks. And we lost his tracks for a, a while. And so we gathered back up at that point in time, I would guess two o'clock in the morning, and uh, started following him again. Probably another... 45 minutes to an hour, we 
We found him. We could see him sitting in a clearing, just sitting on a stump, probably resting for a minute, like we were thinking about. We had a, how I'd say, a maybe 15 to 20 minute standoff there where uh, we were trying to get a perimeter on him and he was screaming and yelling that he was going to start shooting. How close we came to exchanging shots at that point in time, I'm amazed that we didn't. I'm amazed that somebody didn't uh, didn't fire around. We didn't, and as we attempted to get a perimeter around him, he uh, was able to get back in the woods where we couldn't see him and then take off again. So we continued to follow him. I think there were two or three interactions. Uh, the one specifically I remember is um, he did raise his rifle at us. Um, we're yelling for him to put the gun down. Um, he's yelling back at us to kill him. We didn't. Uh, it was pretty tense on a couple occasions. I can't remember exactly what time it started. I think it was probably before midnight. And we chased him until after daylight. But yeah, it was, it was a long night, really long night. David's erratic behavior was on full display that night as he shouted at and threatened the armed law enforcement officers chasing him. He seemed to be daring someone to shoot him, and deputies like Dave Lieb had more than one opportunity to take that shot. It's dark. It's hard to see. We're all hunkered down. We're not standing out in the open so you can take a shot at us. You know, we're using what cover we can and uh, trying to stay behind that cover. Would we have been justified at and probably in a, a uh, shooting board be, been cleared. I don't have any doubt about that. But was there really justification for taking the shot? We didn't feel that there was any of us. Otherwise, we would have. Finally, after hours in the cold and snow, daybreak gave David's pursuers an advantage. Tired and without the cover of darkness, David brought the chase to an end on the morning of February 8th. He was moving through an open field uh, with everybody close on his heels, and he finally just sat down, uh, leaned against a tree, and put the long gun he was carrying uh, under his chin, and we had a standoff at that point. He was about 50 yards into the woods, and he sat down under a tree and put his rifle under his chin, and you know we, we essentially put a uh, perimeter all the way around him, not all the way around him, uh, not on his backside, because if shots started being fired, we didn't want to be shooting at each other. But uh, we had enough of a perimeter that there's no way that he could have escaped. And he was, I think he was worn out at that point in time and recognized that he couldn't go any further. So, you know, at that point, he just, he kind of showed, you know, I always thought Dave was a pretty tough guy, but I mean, he wasn't going to shoot himself. And I don't think he really wanted us to shoot him. He kept saying that. But uh, he was out, for lack of a better word. What, what do you say to the guy at that moment in that situation? Oh, you try to talk him into not shooting himself. No, Dave, we're not going to shoot you. Please don't shoot yourself. And most of us are thinking, go ahead and shoot yourself and let's get this over with. Not long after David sat down, a negotiator with the sheriff's office arrived, and the two talked for hours, trying to broker a deal for David's surrender. By then, word had spread that there was a standoff west of town. If you're listening, Dave, call the station. Um, we'll get you on the air, and we'll, you know, it's time to end this thing peacefully for all folks concerned. Your family's concerned about you. Your friends are concerned. Um, the sheriff's concerned. Um, we need to get to the bottom of it and get you the 
protection you need. David Berger spent 12 hours leading the authorities through a blizzard on February 7th and 8th, and he had spent the month before that hiding from the law. So it was that the day after David's arrest, with a standoff and the pursuit splashed across the front page of newspapers throughout the area, that one prominent cop used the occasion as an opportunity to vent. Jim DuPont, the Flathead County Sheriff, had been accused of a litany of transgressions by David, and for the last month, he had endured insinuations and outright accusations from family and friends that it was DuPont and his cronies who had kidnapped and murdered David, staging the scene of his fake death as a cover to help his body disappear. DuPont, who died in 2012, was never shy about speaking out, especially when it came to David. And he told the Missoulian newspaper on February 9th that his deputies had plenty of chances to kill their fugitive during their hours-long chase and standoff in Batavia. He said, quote, If we were the old boy's lynch mob Burgert wants to think we are, then he wouldn't be in jail right now. He'd be at the funeral home. None of us ever wanted to see David dead, and now we've proved that beyond any doubt. We just wanted him to stand up and face the charges against him. Project 7 and all of the journalism that comes from the Flathead Beacons newsroom in downtown Kalispell is made possible in part because of contributions from members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. What is the Flathead Beacon Editors Club? The Editors Club was created in 2018 as a way for our readers to support the important work we do. Remember, each and every issue of the Flathead Beacon and everything at flatheadbeacon.com is free, but that doesn't mean it's free to produce. In fact, good quality journalism is expensive. But for as little as $5 a month, Beacon Editors Club members can help make our work possible. And while $5 doesn't sound like much, taken together, those contributions can do a lot. Like help us crisscross Western Montana for over 15 months to bring you this podcast. And being a member of the Editors Club comes with some great perks, like bonus episodes of Project 7 and one of our popular Glacier National Park posters. Want to learn more? Head over to BeaconEditorsClub.com today and sign up. As David Berger was booked into the Flathead County Jail on February 8, 2002, the man who set the events that led to his arrest into motion, Jason Larson, was talking with sheriff's deputies and awaiting the arrival of the FBI from Helena, Montana. Jason's description of what he knew was thorough, though, and included information about members of Project 7, the list of supposed targets for assassination, and their plot to overthrow the government. Everything that I said was verified on paper, pretty much. So, I mean, I didn't need to inflate. The story is crazy enough as it is. I don't really need to inflate anything. That's The story is so crazy. Like, who the hell would even think this would happen in America today, you know? And that's a lot for a 17-year-old kid to digest. And I'm going to tell you, I beat myself up for a very long time because I love Dave like a dad or like a brother you know, it was very hard on me emotionally. 
you still think about David? Yeah. Oh, I have dream. I have dreams about him. I, you know, I, like I said, I, I love the guy like a like a family member. Jason was just 17 years old, and the decision to go to the authorities weighed heavily on him, and not just because of his relationship with David. Talking to the feds about a group of secretive, well-armed people, and at least some of whom had violent intentions, came with real risks. I don't look back on bad. You can all, you can choose to focus on the negative things in life or the positive things. And I learned a lot of things from Dave. I learned a lot of Dave's things from that situation. I have no regrets. It is what it is. It's my life. I wouldn't be the person I am today. I wouldn't be the father I am today if I didn't go through the things I went through. So no regrets. If somebody's going to shoot me over it, then they're going to shoot me over it. But it better be a damn good shot because they're going to have stuff flying back at them. Jason went to live with family in California immediately after sharing what he knew about Project 7. But he says he refused an attempt to place him in the witness protection program. He eventually moved back to Montana, where he still lives today. Back in February 2002, with help from Jason Larson, local law enforcement started to learn more about what David had been planning, including information about the hit list he had allegedly compiled with the help of Tracy Brockway. Among the people on that list was then Kalispell Police Chief Frank Garner, the same man David had sparred with in November 2001 when he was pepper sprayed and arrested in downtown Kalispell. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's the kind of thing that stays with you for a long time. And, uh, you know, probably will. So I think a lot of us that were involved in that, right, we deal with things differently to this day and, and treat things differently than I, I would if I'd have been an accountant, you know. So it's difficult, you know, and it's difficult to try to explain to your family why they've got to pay more attention and why we've got to kind of change the way we do our schedule, the way we run our lives and those kinds of things because... Um, of those concerns. In the weeks after the standoff in the snow, a half dozen members of Project 7 were arrested on mostly illegal weapons charges, including Tracy Brockway, who was also facing an obstruction of justice charge related to the night of February 7th. In late February, during Brockway's bond reduction hearing, local reporters learned about the existence of the militia and Project 7's alleged plot to assassinate local officials. Suddenly, a small crime story became national news, and within a week, Project 7 and David Bergert were showing up in the pages of the New York Times. Sheriff Jim DuPont told the Times that Bergert and his followers wanted to kill local cops as the first step in a chain of events that would culminate in a battle with international NATO troops, triggering an all-out revolution. Here's former Kalispell Mayor Pam Carbonari, who served in office as Pam Kennedy. It was the, the police department, local, local law enforcement and local politicians, and kill them all. And then after you kill them all, then they're going to bring in the National Guard. And then I'm going to attack and I'm going to kill the National Guard that comes to town. Because he had this big army of people, which he didn't have a big army of people. Project 7 probably should have been called Project 7 because he probably had seven people, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but um, his talk was greater than that. And certainly the, the cache of weapons was greater than that. But 
I think that was in his mind. He's a sick man. And that's what he thought would really truly happen. And that then he would have a national presence and maybe change the political uh, future for at least this area. Even Travis McAdam of the Montana Human Rights Network, who had been following David closely and tracking him through a local radio show, was surprised by some of the allegations that came out following David's arrest. The piece that was pretty amazing to me about Project 7 that came out was the gathering of the intelligence sheets that they were putting together on local public officials and criminal justice employees. That type of thought put into it goes a lot farther than what we'll see often, which is, you know, you have one or two people, they're angry at the government, something happens, there's a blow up of some kind, they get arrested, they go to jail. This group clearly was planning for something. Um, And then when it comes out that people were testifying that Bergert was at their planning meetings talking about how he, you know, this hit list, he wanted to kill them all, he wanted to kill them all, he wanted to kill their children. Like, that is such a degree farther than than what you normally, you know, you normally see. I mean, that is premeditated murder. Looking around in your community and saying, we need to exterminate these people and all of these things that it was like, wow, it's it's a good thing law enforcement stopped them when they did because they were they were going to do something incredibly bad at some point. And when that would have been, I don't know when it was when it was going to if they had a timeline, but it was, yeah, it was a, it was a horrible and really dangerous and scary situation. By summer, more stories about David and Project 7 began to emerge in the national media. But for all the ink about David's alleged plot to overthrow the government, no one was ever charged with a crime directly related to that plot. On September 3rd, 2002, David was formally charged with two felonies in federal court being in possession of a machine gun, and being a felon in possession of a weapon. The hit list is never mentioned in the charging document. Here's journalist Jamie Rogers. So the hit list, which had, which was exclusively people that worked for the government or sort of adjacent to the government, but I'm talking judges and people that worked for animal control. I mean, it's not like everyone on there was a high-priority target What I have heard, and it's plausible, is that this was a list of people to serve for David. Because David apparently was the only person willing to serve government officials. I don't know how many government officials up there were like about to be served that there would be this list. (laughs) Um, That said, I also don't know why Project 7 would assassinate a person who like catches stray dogs. So, you know, both theories don't hold a lot of water to me, but I do know that the idea that this is a hit list, if there was anything to it, I imagine they would have been charged with conspiracy, and they were not. In May of 2003, David was in federal court in Missoula, about two hours south of Kalispell, pleading guilty to two gun charges. During a hearing in front of Judge Donald Malloy, David said there was no denying that he had possessed an illegal, fully automated weapon, the long gun he had held under his chin the night of the standoff, and that at the time, he was a convicted felon who was not permitted to possess any kind of firearm. 
But even though the details were irrelevant to the case at hand, David and his attorneys repeatedly and vigorously asked that any reference to Project 7 and the alleged plot to overthrow the government be left out of the case files, including in a pre-sentencing evaluation, a document that normally goes into extreme detail about a defendant's conduct and past. The closest David came to recognizing any of the most salacious allegations made about him was admitting he did hold a grudge against people like Frank Garner and Jim DuPont, but the militia, the hit list, the plot to overthrow the government, David denied any of it was real. In November 2004, David appeared in front of Judge Malloy for a final sentencing hearing. The man in the courtroom that day was cordial and respectful, a far cry from the combative extremists those in the Flathead Valley had come to know. It had now been more than two years since David had run into a snowstorm clutching a machine gun to engage in an hours-long standoff with authorities. David was now in treatment for his mental illness and, perhaps, at 39 years old, finally on the right track after so many missteps. The judge's 87-month sentence that day, combined with an earlier judgment, committed David to about 10 years in federal prison. But at the end of the hearing, Judge Malloy spoke directly to David, somewhat hopefully. He praised David's behavior, commended him on the progress he had made so far, and gave him a bit of advice. David, he said, just follow the rules when you get out, and there won't be any problems. The 10-year sentence handed down to David Bergert would be reduced slightly on appeal, but David remained in federal prison from 2002 to 2010. During the eight-plus years he was incarcerated, he spent time in several locations, including at a medical facility in Rochester, Minnesota. Later, he was granted a transfer to a prison in Talladega, Alabama, where he could be closer to his mother. This was, of course, not the first time David had been in the prison system. As a young man, he pled guilty to a robbery in Alabama and served more than two years. During that stretch, David expressed suicidal thoughts to his attorneys and prison doctors, and according to one document, he attempted suicide while he was in custody. He was later given mood-stabilizing drugs in Alabama, and 20 years later, in court documents, David again said he suffered from major depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, and that the medication he was able to access in treatment was vital to his recovery. Once again, here's journalist Jamie Rogers. His mom went and saw him wherever he was pretty regularly, which is pretty amazing because she was not a young lady at that time, and I believe drove everywhere. And I think that his life was relatively good in prison. He was medicated. He had structure. He had mental health support. I mean, unfortunately, it's one of those stories that maybe, like, this is an example where, like, the real world was harsher to him than being locked up was. 
because, and I'm not saying that like it was all roses in, in prison. I'm sure it was also hard, but he was stable. And if you look at his track record, you would think that, man, the second this guy gets in jail, they're just going to keep adding years because he cannot keep his mouth shut. He cannot stay out of trouble. Uh, and that didn't happen. As David prepared for the end of his prison term, there was still some optimism that he could come out a fully reformed man, one who was now being properly treated for the mental illness that had troubled him most of his life. But to those like Travis McAdam of the Montana Human Rights Network, figuring out if someone like David is fully rehabilitated goes beyond just treating any mental disease. One thing that it's important to remember about the followers of these groups is I think it's really easy for people to just say, oh, well, all of them have mental illness. Um, and I think that Dave Berger can be somebody that they can point to and say, well, see, that's, you know, that that proves the case. The reality is, yeah, some some of them might. And it seems like Dave Berger did. But um, I think it can make us have kind of this false sense of security that it's like, oh, all of the people out there that believe this are mentally ill. Um, that's that's not the case. But I do think that it did play a role with Dave Bergert um, in in maybe kind of the the extreme nature of of his beliefs and what he was planning. But I think it sounds like potentially his behavior changed, but I don't know about those hardcore beliefs he had, if those ever changed at all. On March 19th, 2010, David Bergert did get out of prison. He returned to Montana and was paired with a probation officer in Missoula, where his federal court proceedings had been held and where a strict set of post-release guidelines had been imposed. As part of his original sentence, David was told he could not possess a firearm of any kind, that he was not to associate with any militia members, and that he was not to visit Vlad County. He worked in Missoula briefly. He had his medication. He was near his parole officer. All going good. He got an apartment. And then... He got an opportunity to work on a ranch in eastern Montana. And, you know, I think it was a total ranch hand job, like mending fences and stuff. And got out there and pretty quick got into it with the boss. According to Jamie, a fight ensued after the ranch owner and David had a disagreement on how to dispose of some dead livestock that had been killed in a storm. The men got into an altercation and David left with at least one gun, which he believed was payment, but the rancher said was stolen. Regardless of if the gun was stolen or not, David was in violation of the conditions of his release by simply possessing it. After the incident at the ranch, David returned to Missoula and was mostly homeless and jobless. He occasionally went to the Pavarello Center, a homeless shelter near downtown, and it was there, in the spring of 2011, They'd had a number of memorable interactions with staff members, including Patrick Dugans. At the time, we didn't allow people who were in, intoxicated to stay unless it was winter and failure to let that person stay could result in their death. So there was a, a gentleman there named Tim and Tim was an, you know, a frequent uh, flyer of the POV. Um, he passed a few mm -hmm. years ago, but... It was after dinner, and Tim was intoxicated, and so it was like, hey, Tim, time to leave. Ah, oh, Patrick, let me stay. No, you got to go. And all of a sudden, this kind of squatter, heavier guy with clippered, uh, clippered head and a little mustache, he doesn't get in my face, but he's right next to me. 
and he's mm-hmm. asking me all these questions really fast, like, hey, who are you? Why do you have a right to tell this gentleman that he can't be here? He hasn't disturbed anybody. He, you know, just giving me this whole deluge of questions, everything coming at once. And because I knew Tim, I hadn't approached Tim with another staff person because Tim knew me by name. And so it, it was kind of funny because Tim has to start explaining why Tim can't be there. So Tim starts telling him, no, 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 you just stop giving Patrick a hard time. I'm drunk. I can't stay here. Um, and the guy's like asking me why. And I'm like, well, you know, it's just the rule. And it wasn't rare that we got this kind of consumer at the pub. You know, kind of a guy who's a little bit against the system, a little bit out of the system. He's new. He tells me he's never stayed before. Myself and another staff person are doing check-in for the night. And he writes down uh, the name David Earl. Maybe a week or so later, Travis has a run-in with this guy in our main men's shower, which was in the basement. So my name is Travis Mateer, um, and I worked at the Pabrillo Center from 2008 to about 2016. Um, and in 2011, I was lead staff. So I was overseeing all the direct care staff um, and also working on weekends, which is when I had my run-in with Mr. Berger. So it was, it was a weekend, and I can't recall if it was a Saturday or Sunday, but at that time, the policy was to close down the building until 11 a.m. So I was working in the building, but no one else was supposed to be in the facility. So doing my rounds, I noticed that there was some activity in the shower, and I went into the bathroom. Um, this was down a flight of stairs, and it was a rather large bathroom, like three shower stalls. And Mr. Mr. Brooklyn was actually, you know, finishing up his shower, and I had to, to tell him that he was not allowed to be in the building, and he did not respond well to that at all. So I was immediately in a confrontation with him. I was by myself. He was in the in the bathroom, and it was tense there for for a few minutes. <laughs> Very unsettling, actually. He was pretty specific in, in reasons why I shouldn't want to mess with him, and he mentioned being in prison mentioned being in a standoff. I believe he mentioned Judge Malloy specifically. You know, so re- really quickly he was trying to establish himself and his potential sort of threat towards me. He took a picture of me with his phone. I distinctly remember that. And essentially, you know, I was in a standoff with him because I told him he needed to exit the building first or I was going to call 911. So I did not want to leave first and have him behind me. I was making sure he was going to exit first, keep him in front of me, and if he wasn't going to do that, I was going to call 911. But, you know, call 911 can escalate the situation pretty dramatically. So I was really hoping to just get him out of the building. And eventually he did leave. Unsurprisingly, David Oso started popping up on the radar of local law enforcement. So my name is uh, Captain Anthony Rio. I'm with the Missoula County Sheriff's Office. We just knew he was a very anti-law enforcement. He was very, we, we knew why he was on probation, why he was in our area. And so... It was one of those things where, I mean, our deputies, we, we deal with people like this all the time. And so that are aggressive and hostile. And and so, you know, you, you kind of have to be on your guard around someone like this. Until we really started dealing with him and um, realized the difficulties that he had dealing with anyone, the public. And, and I, you know, and I just think that he was possibly progressively getting worse. You know, and I don't know if he was on medication before and then not stopped. You know, I don't know any of that, but 
that's kind of what it seemed like, is it seemed like he just started progressively getting worse. Larry Schwint, who would exchange gunfire with David in June 2011 in the Lolo National Forest, had his own string of encounters with David before that fateful day. It was probably two weeks prior. I got a phone call from dispatch that said there was a gentleman that just wanted a phone call from a deputy. There was an incident, traffic incident. I think it was like a road rage incident down by Lolo. And so I called the number and David answered that I'm David Berger. I was driving down by Lolo and a vehicle full of, he said, wetbacks, meaning Hispanics, just tried running me off the road. And I want you to do something about it. They struck my vehicle. There's vehicle damage. I'm tired of these people just started saying derogatory remarks about being in the country and think they can get away with all this stuff. And, and I told him, I said, listen, I can't help you unless we have a civil conversation, you know, vehicle description, all that stuff. And he just, he was just so irate about it. He wouldn't give up any information really. And he said, but there's vehicle damage. And I said, well, I would love to meet with you. If you'd come to the sheriff's office today here in Missoula, I can take pictures of your vehicle damage. I can get your descriptions. I can get a report. I can give you a copy of that report right away. He said, fine, I'll be there this afternoon. I said, well, call me when you get there. Um, he never did call back. We never did hear from him again. In the summer of 2011, David Bergert had been out of prison for more than a year, but the storm clouds he courted were still following him everywhere. He was in possession of a weapon, violating the terms of his supervised release. He was living mostly out of his vehicle, a blue-green Jeep Cherokee, and he was, according to some reports, drinking again. That month, with no other prospects, David decided to pack up his truck and leave town for a little while. He headed out on US Highway 12 and pulled off the road just south of Lolo, Montana, at an unremarkable roadside forest service recreation site called Fort Fizzle. David camped illegally at Fort Fizzle for a short while, parking his Cherokee in the trees just off the highway to avoid detection. He could fish, wash, or swim in the creek just beyond the information center and bathrooms, and he could hone his survival tactics by venturing off to the seemingly endless woods in every direction. Then, on June 12, 2011, a woman drove by David Bergert's campsite and called 911. 911, what are you reporting? Uh, we are reporting. We live on Highway 12. Uh-huh. And just before you get to Fort Fizzle, uh, there is an electric, where the electric people came in on a line. there, And there has been someone parked there and sleeping there the last five nights. Weird. It's not what I pictured in my mind. No, it's a rest stop. Yeah, I was expected. <laughs> I did not picture a rest stop. So this is where, like, this is where David drove through the ditch. Probably. Oh, this is naming an entrance. Like, was that like? Look, you have like a straight shot right through. Next time on the final episode of Project Seven. Fort Fizzle with that Cherokee. Uh, I probably made two or three more steps when he popped over the hood from the passenger side of the Jeep, and that's when uh, I remember seeing the first recoil. When you have someone actively shooting at you, you know, it's a lot different than putting on some paper. I literally remember sitting there and looking at a co-worker and being like, it's Dave Berger at the sequel. 
everything about it plays out very much like how I thought it was going to play out up in the Flathead area. From my perspective, until you can find hard proof that says David Berger is no longer a threat, you can't let that go down. The best ambiguous answer I can give you is there's half of me that says David Berger was such an asshole that he could barely go a day without having law enforcement contact. And then there's this other side of me that says, maybe he did have some contacts. Maybe he is living in Canada. Project 7 is a production of the Flathead Beacon in Kalispell, Montana. The show is written, produced, and edited by Justin Franz and me, Andy Viano. The editor-in-chief of the Flathead Beacon is Kellen Brown, and our managing editor is Myers Reese. Music in this episode is composed by Jeremy Reinbolt and performed by Nick Spear, Rebecca Spear, Halliday Quist, Jesse Auman, and Jeremy Reinbolt. Marco Forcone is the audio engineer for the Project 7 theme. Our ad music is Blippy Trance by Kevin McLeod and used via Creative Commons License 4.0. The Project 7 logo was designed by Dwayne Harris and our website was built by Patrick Sappington and Pierce Ware. Special thanks to Flathead Valley Community College, the Montana Human Rights Network, the University of Montana School of Journalism, JusticeProductions.net, and the entire staff of the Flathead Beacon. And a reminder that this and every episode of Project 7 is brought to you by Renewal by Anderson, the complete replacement division of Anderson Windows. To learn more, visit rbamontana.com. That's rbamontana.com. Project 7 is made possible by members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. Member contributions help pay for all of the Beacon's reporting and help secure our future as the Flathead Valley's most trusted source of local, independent journalism. Members also get access to great perks, including weekly bonus episodes of this podcast. Check out our website at project7pod.com to see documents, videos, and more related to this and every episode. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Project7Pod. If you know the whereabouts of David Berger or want to get in touch with us for any other reason, send an email to project7 at flatheadbeacon.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.